Hey everyone, today on the pod is Marta Salas Pardo and Roger Guimera. What a great talk. We, we could have gone on for hours. Peer review, power laws, becoming scientists, Bayesian statistics, and much, much more. Marta and Roger study fundamental problems in all areas of science, including natural, social, and economic sciences. They have expertise in a broad set of tools from statistical physics, network science, statistics, and computer science. Both of them were many years at Northwestern University before starting a group at URB in Catalonia. They are authors of many classic papers in network science, lots of important work, for example, on community detection. And on the pod today, we talk about their paper called A Bayesian Machine Scientist to Aid in the Solution of Challenging Scientific Problems, a wonderful piece of work. But enough of me, let's get to the show. saying anything to, to keep it I don't know but yeah like I, I saw some of the previous uh, podcasts right and and you were talking about how easy it is now to go to Wikipedia and learn about one topic right or well, start on Wikipedia and then maybe download a couple of books and then 20 papers and when I started my PhD we still had to re- I mean people were still sending cards right requesting for papers <laughs> yes and I was going to the library and going to, to the to library yeah stuff. I, I, I went to the library to see like some, I don't know, well, I don't know if it's, if it's time already, but when I, I didn't even start doing what I'm doing now, nothing even close. I was doing experiments. Well, let's, let's start. Yeah, let's start. <laughs> yeah, let's start. Yeah. But this may be a great place to start. So we can start uh, with you, Martha, and kind of, so, so I like, and I, I, it's not just me. It seems people like to know who we are in a way that people rarely get to know. So maybe we can start by asking sort of, where, what, what kind of, how did you grow up and, and what led you to want to become a scientist, if anything? Okay, so, so I don't know. Well, I'll start, I'll start. Yeah. So I'm a physicist and I didn't start doing anything that was remotely close to what I do now. So I started doing experiments. <laughs> I started doing solid state physics actually and doing experiments with very cold things. And, but, so I guess, I don't know, it's a, it's a, little, it's a little bit of an anecdote, but I mean, the, the person at the time, like there was this guy in, in our university and he, he said, oh, why don't you come to my lab and do this experiment? And I was like super excited because I was still an undergraduate and that was not very common and, and I was very happy about it. But then I actually did all my, I guess, when I, when I studied, I took all the ther- like theoretical subjects. And I really was more interested in like statistical mechanics and things like this. But I mean, I sort of like got trapped into that. But then I, one day I decided like, I just I don't want to do this anymore. It's just, I don't like it. And he said, oh, so now you want to play, to play being a theorist. It's like role-playing kind of thing. And I was like, what do you mean? And he had this idea that only like the very brightest minds could even attempt to do like theory. I, and, and I was just like, well, I mean, well, I'll, I'll take my chances. <laughs> I just, yes. I'll do it. So I went into statistical mechanics and I did my PhD in like spin glasses, which is something very, I don't know, I guess it's sort of like traditional, but not, the community is not that large. Yes. And then after my PhD, I decided to change again. 
Um, and Roger here thinks that I get tired of things, but I just become interested in other things, I guess. I mean, I like to explore. And I think that what sometimes, you know, I feel like we put a lot of effort in just exploring something that is new, just because it's new, as opposed to like doing more of the same that we were doing, because it's kind of like, it looks easy, right? I mean, so I, I my father was a physicist as well, but he, he, he didn't, he, he, he didn't work as a physicist. He went to IBM and he has this like very first Unix books at home, like about how to code and like stuff like this. But well, I don't know, I, I, but he, he, I guess he was curious and I inherited that from him. But when I started, I had no idea I wanted to become a scientist. I didn't even know what it was. It was very far. I, I just went into physics because I wanted to do astrophysics at the beginning. And yeah. then after taking the first course, I was like, oh, I'm so not doing this. This is like <laughs> awful. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't like it at all. And I was just like, what is this? I mean, like telescopes? And I mean, this is not what I read in the book by my, I mean, no, I didn't like it. So I, I, I actually like the first thing that I really liked was electromagnetism. Like what I liked was like Maxwell's laws and it's like, oh, it's everything in one, this big one theory and explains everything. And it was, it was so elegant for me. It was like a, 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 a change, a change for me. Like it was so eye opening. It's like, oh, so this is what physics is about. And, and, yes. and, and I'm really liking this. And then, and then it was statistical mechanics. And I was just like, wow, I really like this. This is, this is what's getting me. And, and, and yeah, and then it just one thing led to another. It's like, so what do you have to do to like be here? <laughs> and it's like, oh, you have to do a PhD. Oh, and then I'll do it. And, and to me at the time, it was a challenge it, because it, it was also perceived as, as this difficult thing. It was hard to get a fellowship. It was hard to get into it, at least in, in, in Barcelona. That's where yeah. I did my PhD. And, and I was thinking, well, um, I'm going to try to do it. And yes. um, well, and you know, and that's but where I am. <laughs> and I and I love it, even though as challenging as it is, I love it. I mean, and, and then we can discuss more anecdotes later. <laughs> Maybe it's time yeah, for no. me to talk about his experience. But I think I think we should stick a little more. And just because you you said so many things, and there were a lot of them that stuck out to me. So, but the first I want to come back to just really quickly is this notion of this professor you had who said oh so you want to play and be a theorist right because i think the, one of the purposes of this of doing this one is just to get a chance to talk to you two but the other one is because i want young scientists to have a chance to see that we're just normal people and that exactly anyone should give it a shot at being a theorist in my opinion and then you know maybe you like it and maybe you don't but so what was it in you that made you think, yeah, I, I can do this, or this is a silly old man, or like, well, what was it that gave you the courage? Uh, uh, I, I have to think, at the time, I was just like very unhappy with what I was doing. And I was thinking, this is not what I wanted. This is not what I wanted. I wanted to the theory because I thought that that was the cool stuff. I mean, I didn't like labs when I was studying. I liked like problems and like analytical calculations. I mean, that's what I liked. And I was thinking, yeah. well, I mean, you, I mean, you should 
do what you want to do because if you i i'm i'm i didn't know if i was going to be any good or anything but but i knew that i was going to like it and that and also another thing is that i felt that i was not giving it my best it was just like i was doing it but i was not very convinced and i was there and then i thought and you have to find something that it's really motivate like Yep. Not only challenging, many problems in science are, are challenging. Of course, there are many things out there where we don't even know that we don't know. But, but it has to motivate you and you have to feel this sort of like, yeah. And then, then I went and, and, and I went to do this other thing, like these spin glasses with this very young professor who had just gotten and I was like his first student. And everybody was looking at me like, this, this woman is crazy. I mean, what, what is she doing? <laughs> Why would she even go for this? It's like such a risk. The other one was like a super well-known professor, like with awards and with all the stuff. And I just, no, I just, I, I, I don't want it. I, I just don't want it. I will take my chances, do this other thing. And it was so, it was freeing at the same time, but so satisfying because it's like now, now I get to do what I wanted to get my pencil and my paper and do like whatever replica calculation I had to do at the time. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, you know, that's, that's, yes. that's, that's what cool. I mean, yeah. Yes, but let's switch over because, I mean, you're, you two have this incredible collaboration. So I imagine at some point also the stories will have to meet, but let's, uh, let's switch over and, and, uh, and sort of also here yeah so i think our stories uh, mix at the university right when we like we met in college but first and we have to rewind for you and see what what about you what is your background is your... so uh, i wanted to be a medical doctor all my life basically and then uh, eventually some at some point during the last year before before college uh and mostly because I was studying philosophy, right? We had philosophy, it was mandatory in, in high school in, in Catalonia back then. And then studying philosophy, I don't know, it opened my mind somehow, right? It made me think that, uh, that being a medical doctor was something to, I don't know, mundane maybe, or like a mechanic of, like, of, of bodies, right? Of human bodies, right? And I don't know, I like to think about more abstract things and more abstract problems. And then somehow uh, I started reading about quantum mechanics and relativity and all of these things. And then I switched and decided that I wanted to study physics. But again, it was more like, mostly like, I don't know, maybe half a year before applying for college or something like this. So it, it's not a vocational thing, right? There wasn't anyone in my family that was even in science, right? Or anything like this, right? Uh, so I don't know, it was a... I don't know the will to, to study abstract things. I think and and, yes. uh, and all these abstract ideas and uh, I guess mysterious results in quantum mechanics and relativity and all these things that got me into physics. And then I went in college and started studying physics. And perhaps surprisingly, the things that uh, I liked the most were not quantum mechanics or relativity, but classical mechanics, Lagrangian mechanics, and Hamiltonian mechanics, all of these things, and statistical mechanics as well, right? Course. And then, uh, I don't know, towards the end of, the, of college, I started reading about applications of physics to things that have nothing to do with physics, like societies and organizations and neural networks and biology and things like this. And I got excited about doing something uh, along these lines, basically using statistical physics uh, to solve problems that are not in statistical physics. And then I started my, my PhD. So I was studying in Barcelona 
but I came to Tarragona, which is where we are now, and started working on math mathematical models of organizations, basically, of yeah. uh, like companies, really, right? And it's a, it's a very complicated story. <laughs> so again, I, maybe I can use an anecdote uh, like Marta did. So once I was visiting a physics professor in, in Alacan, which is a city that is like, I don't know, three hours south from here, or well, more like five hours perhaps south from here. And I told him that I was a physicist in a department of chemical engineering, working on problems with economists, right? And he asked me whether I could sleep well at night, right? With such a, a weird combination of topics, right? And well, that made me think, I said, well, yeah, I actually sleep pretty well, right? <laughs> I don't know. I enjoy what I'm doing and I think it's interesting problems. And, and we actually managed to publish interesting things and so on. And then the whole thing of networks exploded at the same time, right? So the first papers in networks were in 98. And, and that's when we started our PhDs, right? Martin Barcelona and, and me and I in, in Tarragona. And then I remember my advisor, Albert Diaz, coming, or one of my advisors, coming to me and saying, have you seen this paper with the White and Strogatz paper, right? Yes. Because we were working in organizations, right? In companies and, say, and he was like, Look, this looks like a company to me, right? Like people exchanging things, perhaps, or things like this, right? And then we got into, like from the beginning into the networks uh, wave. And I guess that's how we how I got where we where I am now. And again, we met Marta in, in college and then we did our PhDs in different places, but we were together like in, in life, not in science, but in life, we were together already. And then we left for a postdoc together and that's uh, to the Northwestern. Yeah, but we were, at the beginning, I, I was not doing networks. I didn't want to do networks. <laughs> I was kind of like, oh, well, okay, I will do biology because that's what I wanted to do, but uh, I mean, but hang on a moment. So you said that statistical physics was your passion, but now somehow biology had uh, taken over? Uh, or? Well, I mean, at the you know, now there are so many options for students. If I could have, if I could have gone back in time, I would have done uh, like probably like biophysics or biological physics or something like this, because it's, it was another thing that I liked a lot. But I mean, I was I was better at, I mean, I hated studying biology because, I mean, I had to memorize many things and I was much better at math and physics. <laughs> so that's, that's what I, what, I mean, because I was clearly much better at, at one thing yeah. than the other. And, 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 and I just decided to, to go for that. But I, I, I always had this, I mean, I like all sorts of problems. I'm very curious about social problems as well, but I'm super curious about biological problems. I think that's just like, there are so many out there. The only thing is that it, uh, it didn't work so well. So, so, I, so we went to the same lab. We went with Luis Amara as, as postdocs and Luis was just starting and he wanted to do this transition to biology and stuff. And I was like very interested in that. So we started working there. And I worked for that in many years, but it didn't work because I mean, we, it was very hard to publish. I mean, we had lots of results, but the community is just very close. Yes. And it's very hard for them to accept somebody from the outside to like telling them things that, you know, they think that they know how to do and maybe they don't, but I mean, they think they do. So, so, so at a certain point in my life, I decided, well, if, if you want to give the science, you have to do something else because I mean, this is not going to give you a position, unfortunately. So, yeah. but I mean, I started becoming interested in, 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 in other problems in networks when, 
also at the time because well of course that was like a very guest productive line in that in the lab of Luis and and that's when I don't know I started we started with that then we started with the stochastic block models <laughs> here and we are, are. <laughs> we should we should we should get we should get into all this but I think yeah. it's really interesting because also this is something I think it's changing a little bit in some fields but still very difficult in many others right it is this thing about breaking through in another field even if you have uh i mean i remember i collected this big data set a dtu right where we got this incredible interaction data um between all the students how they meet in real world and we thought oh it's going to be nice to publish some stuff on epidemiology and it was basically impossible right i think we we also had some exciting results in my opinion and we and we eventually published them, but it took so long and there was so much vitriol and anger in the reviews, right? And, and so now finally with COVID, like some people are like, well, maybe it's useful uh, to have this data set uh, and it's been used a lot now, but it's, it's taken so long. So I, I maybe talk a little bit more about like this because it also is exactly for our generation, it's how do you even get a job, right? Like now there's more interdisciplinary uh, opportunity, but it seems to me that that there's a difficulty in breaking through, you know, when you apply for funding, when you try to publish papers uh, and when you have to get hired. So, so yeah, yeah. like what, that would, yeah. So perhaps I, I can bring up another anecdote here from, from a similar data set from the one you collected. So. In 2002 or 2001, at the end of my PhD, because we were working on organizations and all the network stuff and so on, we contacted the, the university, the IT service, right? We said, look, maybe we could look at the communications between the people within the university, right? So yeah. the email data set. Right? And, and well, I mean, there was a, I mean, they wanted to anonymize everything and the concerns, privacy concerns were not that high uh, then as they thankfully are now, let's say, right? Uh, but of course, it was much easier to get a data set like this back then. So we got the data set and we analyzed and we an analyzed the community structure and we find uh, we found some interesting, I don't know, kind of fractal path, like self-similarity at the level of communities and communities within communities and so on, right? And, and we were very excited. So we sent a paper to Nature Science and blah, 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 right? And it was rejected from everywhere, uh, duly, like quickly. But then we submitted to PNAS, right? And in PNAS, a like an anonymous member of the National Academy told us that, uh, that, it was, that this work was such, so uninteresting that we should publish it in the campus newsletter. Literally, this was the, like the report. It was like five lines of text. And yes. one of, uh, part, like half of it was saying that we should publish it in the campus newsletter because this might be interesting to the university <laughs> staff, right? And, and then, okay, so obviously it was rejected, right? And, and then we submitted to PRL and it was sent to, uh, let me say, to, three, to two reviewers. One was positive and one was negative. And then it was sent to a third reviewer to break the tie. And the third reviewer was positive. And then it was sent off to a fourth reviewer to break the tie again. <laughs> and this one was negative and the paper was rejected, right? Oh. And eventually, it was, and at the time, the editor in PRL for these topics was a high-energy physicist that has since moved to high energy, to editing only high-energy physics or something like this. So it, it was really hard also in physics to get uh, these sort of papers uh, published. Uh, I mean, yes. 
Marta was talking about how it was it's hard for biologists to let us in, right? Or for sociologists or for economists, and blah. but it was hard for physics, like for, for us uh, to publish in physics journals as well, right? In, like at that point in the, at the early 2000s, publishing about ecology and animals in PRL was okay, but publishing about humans was not okay. That was not physics. Yeah. And no. so eventually we published it in PRE and it's a, it's a very, it was the, well, there were two papers, one by us and one by Bernardo Huberman. Those were the first papers on analyzing an e a real email network with thousands of people, right? And now it's a very highly cited paper. But but again, it was published in PRE after being told that that was not that was interesting for the campus newsletter and things like this. Yeah, but I remember there was some what's it like Aikman or something. Also, there was a really interesting one with yeah. the entropy of yeah yeah um, around the two thousand four. Yeah, that was yeah, perhaps 2003 or 2002. So it was we almost, were just same, kind of a... almost at the same time. But uh, but the first one was, if I remember, I, I might be uh, remember. Or actually, no, but I think the Ekman paper was using Bernardo Huberman's data set. Maybe yeah, okay. I, I might be getting this wrong. But anyway, these three words on email networks were, were basically at the same time. But at the, again, at the time was something that was very, now it sounds like normal, right? Everyone does this. Yeah, yeah. But back then was something very strange to be studying. Yeah, no, I remember, I remember, um, I remember I was at the Kevley Institute for Theoretical Physics um, because my uh, girlfriend at the time, now wife, was at uh, Santa Barbara. So I managed to get somehow sneak in there. I also, by being there, I worked on biophysics and I also remember all the, memorizing all the names and so on that you talked about but there I, I met the director David Gross who was one of these very big high energy Nobel Prize winning uh winning guys and he was like oh so what do you do I told him and he just said well it sounds interesting but it's not physics and I just remember this is like the Nobel Prize winner immediately just letting me know you know like uh, where I was yeah well things have changed right yeah well I mean we all have I, I, we could keep going on and on, <laughs> and the podcast would only be about this. No, unfortunately, right? And about nasty reviews and yeah. about people. Well, we got this kind of thing like this is this is not even wrong. I mean, I remember this once. This is not even wrong, and I was just like, <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, uh, yeah. but it, it's a it's, it's a nice paper. It's it, I mean, but I mean, I just was thinking, my who. This. I mean, who are these people who think that they can write? It's not even wrong. Yeah. I mean, what what kind of? I mean, it's so disrespectful, right? It's not even. I mean, I don't. I mean, it's not even a review. It's what what, what I mean. It's you know, uh, and, and, it's, and it's unfortunate that these things are allowed, right? These, these people who should never be asked again to write a referee report if they write these sort of things. I mean, yes, right. but I think you're right. I think it is changing, and I think it's getting more and more difficult to get away with being uh just pure evil in the reviews the reviews are becoming uh, public and the young researchers are better than we were at speaking up and they have you know twitter and they have places where they can find each other and and just kind of i mean we also i we also just took it right like i've i've had my share of those reviews and there was no kind of recourse right you just were like okay we send <laughs> send to another journal and mm -hmm. and uh and and hope for it so so um but 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 and then they have many other challenges and there's more competition and you know like it's it's constantly changing but i think it's nice to reminisce 
and and uh, and hear about these stories. And I think it's nice for everyone because, you know, we live in a world where we see a lot of the successes and. Uh, and and I mean, yeah, I'm, I feel terrible just hearing about your journey through submissions and the fourth reviewer and, uh, you know, all these things that are, um, yeah, we yeah, all have stories. As you were saying, I think it's important to share it because, I don't know, at least it, it's helped me to know that, I don't know, going to Northwestern or talking to Jim Stanley, for instance, right? Knowing that people that are that big also get this sort of review sometimes, right? Yes. So I think it, or at least it helped me to like to, I mean, normalize something that shouldn't be normal, but at least to cope with it, right? To, to be able to say, okay, well, that's the bad part of our job. There are very nice, there are many nice things, right? That we, I mean, we have a job where we can think about creative uh, problems, right? We can sit and, and decide what we want to do. But then, yeah, there is the reviews, which is probably the nastiest part of, the, of our job, right? Yes. Yeah. It's, um, awful. it's awful also to write to be a reviewer, right? When you are rejecting a paper, it's not nice. I mean, it's not nice, but I mean, sometimes you have to reject. I mean, it's, but, um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think it's, I think it's true that it is. Um, I also tried to strike up, like, I guess when I was younger, I would always write kind of, I would list all the things that were wrong, but I wouldn't make a decision on rejecting because I felt so terrible about rejecting. And I think now I try to be much more clear and say like, like this and this would fix it. And if it, you don't do this, it won't, you know what I mean? Like I, I've, I'm so bad at conflict that I, I think I wrote some kind of too vague reviews in the beginning where I kind of was like, yeah, it's, it's very well written. And then I list like a hundred problems with it without saying reject or something. And I think that's also unkind in a way because you're yeah, letting, being kind is, is just being thoughtful, right? And if, yeah. I mean, in our job, we are supposed to review papers and reject them when we think they don't fit some standards yes. or whatever, right? No. But, you, but you can still be thoughtful and, and, and write the review the way you would like your, the reviews you get uh, to be written, right? But, but, I mean, and, and I don't know, so try to be constructive, try to say the things that uh, could fix the, pre the, the the paper or the idea, right? Or point the mistakes if there are mistakes, but there are very rarely obvious mistakes in paper, right? So, yes. But you have to be clear. I think it's, it's a matter of expectations, right? If, 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 if you think that you are never going to accept that paper, no matter what they do, just, just say it, That's part of being It's fair. not like listing a bunch of things, having the others do it, and then say no. <laughs> Absolutely, but it, I mean, it's I would not. get myself kind of into the following trap, if I'm being honest here now. Luckily, maybe not so many will listen to this, but I would get myself into the following trap that I would list a bunch of things that were wrong in a paper that I really think should be rejected. And then they would answer all of it. And then I'd be like, well, I can't reject it now, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then I'll be like, okay, yeah, just publish it. It's fine. Yeah, uh, I but think but maybe I really wanted to reject it, but I felt it was impossible. So I'm but better yeah, now yeah. kind of saying, there's nothing that's going to fix this. Yeah, but the alternative is the moving target reviewer, right? Where you solve a, a list of ten problems that they've raised up in or they brought up in the in the previous review, then you spend three months or six months uh, answering all of those things, and in the next review they they come up with ten new things, right? That's the yeah, moving exactly. target, which That's, is also unfair. It's but also it unfair, depends right? if the things are, are problems of clarity, right? Sometimes they say, well, once they they clarify this. 
I, I cannot say that that I will agree with everything they say. I mean, sometimes I'm really? like, I don't understand this, but yes. well, maybe when you answer, I still don't agree. I mean, just yes. don't don't get all excited. Uh, I think that's. I mean, it's it's. I agree with you. I mean, it's fair to set clear expectations for like the people. Yes. No, I mean, okay. I'm rejecting. You are free to like answer to what I say, and I will read what you have to say. But for now, it's rejected, and and you know, you have to do many things to change my mind. Sort of thing. Yes, so but then, and, but I I agree. That's also all I'm trying to say is that now I think that's my my current level uh, of reviewing is to try and be clear um and 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 not move not move the goalposts um and, but but it's yeah but it is but i think as long as you do your best and you try and be fair and try and as you, like you said write the reviews you want to the kind of reviews you want to receive i think that's you know what else that's the best you can do that's all you can do mm-hmm. but this but anyway i mean i think this is a really valuable conversation but we i still want to hear more of the story and i also want to talk a little bit about i'm a little bit afraid to talk about this um because you know like there are these uh fault lines in network science right so so i i was thinking should i should i uh, get uh Laszlo and Aaron Closet on and talk about power laws, <laughs> you know, would we do it? But there's also a kind of fault line with, uh, with, I mean, not really in our generation, or at least I never felt it, but there was this kind of Laszlo, uh, Luis Amaral fault line that kind of impacted network science, right? A lot of the people that I've interviewed, I know personally, uh, but not you guys. And it is kind of a leftover thing of, these old arguments, I think, right? What do you yeah, think? I don't know. <laughs> I, I think you should ask them, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course, you know that uh, we spent lots of years with, with Luis. So, and I would spend seven years with Luis, and we only have good things to say about Luis, both uh, scientifically and uh, and personally. It's just, so He's, yeah. a, he's a caring person and he's a great scientist. I've never seen anyone like Luis uh, get, I don't know, learn things from data, really. Like be able to tell stories uh, that we didn't know before from data. So... <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm not trying to do anything. No, I just, no, 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 I mean, I guess that the, 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 I mean it's, it's not a secret. There is a conflict. <laughs> I mean, there are, there was, I mean, I, I'm there, or there it's like, you know, behind i mean now of course the newer generation doesn't know anything about it because i mean i guess they they don't see each other so much at conferences anymore uh but there was a conflict but i mean i, I the i mean the origin of the conflict i think it's for them to disclose even <laughs> even if we if i mean we have one side of things right yes uh and and because i think that luis is, is, is and i know he's a very He's an honest person. He tries to be as fair as he can, but of course, it's still like you know, it's your experience, right, of things. And 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 uh, yeah, that's that's all there is. But there 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 has been some some conflict there and some not citing one another or some sort of like disagreeing on things. And um, but I, I uh, in a positive light, right? I think that this propelled the field forward, right? In trying to find, you know, these ways of like creative ways of interpreting data, of looking at data. I mean, I think that 
in a way, this, this, this was very positive, right? Because of, of, yes. of all the knowledge, of all the excitement that it generated around it. Even if unfortunately, I mean, of course, one, one doesn't want those things to, to, be, yeah. to be, you know, part of like, like your everyday, your, your like everyday thinking or whatever. And, and going back to power laws in, in networks, well, I think that it, power laws in networks was a very interesting idea and the preferential attachment model, which had precedents as far back as the 50s with Herbert Simon and so on, right? And, and perhaps even earlier than that. Uh, but pretty explicitly, let's say, uh, in the 1950s with Herbert Simon. But anyway, it, it's a, it was a very interesting topic. It was not expected in any way, but people working on, on networks, well, in, in, like computer scientists, let's say, and, and sociologists and, and, and these sort of people. And it was a, an aspect that got many physicists interested, right? Because physicists, uh, perhaps now, uh, power laws have lost a bit of that uh, mystique, right? But yes. back like 20 years ago, right? Talking about power laws, God, I mean, it didn't matter what it was about. It got physicists interested almost automatically, right? Yeah, but I mean, yeah. but to me, in a way, it's kind of like, you know, in a movie, they have this thing called a MacGuffin, which is the device that propels the plot forward, right? That, that it's a conflict that's invented only to get the characters from one place to the other. And if you think about power laws, that's why the physicists are here, right? That it was statistical physics. This is how I would tell the story. Statistical physics found universality, which was insane, right? It means that you can study a model inside a computer and learn something about the real world if they belong to the same universality class. It's unbelievable. It's physics when it's the best, right? And then you had Pierbach and the self-organized criticality which kind of further fueled this idea. And then at this point, like every time a physicist saw a power law, they were like, oh, I must go here, right? And then the, the power laws, or at least broad degree distributions, let's say, showed up in networks and all the physicists came. And that's, I think it's why we're here. But you're right, I think that it is, in a sense, a MacGuffin. It is a thing that brought us all here, but it didn't fulfill this promise of universality in the networks, right? There's not, it's not universality classes like we would have hoped. Yeah. Probably the processes that drive them are much more multi-scale processes, many different things, but, but it's somehow, as, as Marta said, it really did, um, you know, the conflict, the power loss, whatever made, made the interest happen. There was a kind of nice cocktail. That's how I would tell this. Yeah, I think it was a combination of that. And well, and then the fact that the watson strogatz model was solvable analytically, right? And yes. we started to see all those. And then, I don't know, with techniques like, I don't know, generating functions and things like this that were like uh, standard yeah. to physicists, right? It was a, I don't know, it was a combination of factors, but certainly the power loss was one of them. And now if we fast forward to 2021, I think that's, well, it's exactly what you said, right? Uh, I don't think that uh, that power laws are, I mean, that we've learned many more things about networks now that are perhaps, or that probably, or at least to me or to our research, much more relevant, right, than that. But at least, I mean, there were a bunch of model preferential attachment. I mean, there were a lot of interesting things, right? There are a lot of networks that have broad degree distributions where you wouldn't expect it, right? So. Yeah. Without, without, 
like uh, minimizing the, the importance of that even today and the impact on epidemics, for instance, right? The, the lack of the epidemic yep. threshold. I mean, there are many interesting, well, interesting and important results, right? But the things we do now in networks have not, like we never look at the degree distribution of networks in our, uh, in, in our no. like we, the two of us at least, right? There some people might oh, still. No, it, it, yeah, but well, I, I think people have lost interest in it. I mean, because it's not necessary for you to do any of the things that you, I, I, I don't think if it's not a power law, then I cannot look at my data. I mean, no, no, that, that, no. that, is not, that, is, that is, doesn't mean anything. It's a power law. Okay, well, good for you or not. I mean, I don't yes. know. I mean, but it depends I, on what you want. But I mean, it's, it's, lost, it's lost its importance in, 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 in current, I mean, the current context in network yeah. science or, or like whatever. I mean, it's not. It's not that important, right? I mean, because we know that there are lots of strange things that can happen, even if you don't have a, a, a power law degree distribution. Yes. And, and as I say, like most of my, like the other day, I mean, I, I think this is an, a little anecdotic, but it, we were talking with a student and suddenly we said, oh, but did you look at this property of the network? And we were like, no, oh, oh we never looked at it. Okay, why don't, why don't you do it? <laughs> maybe, maybe we learned something from this. So, so. Some, some, some of these things, I think they, yeah, they've lost, well, they've lost its, its importance because people can do so many more things now, right? Yeah. They just, and they know so many more things that it's, but, yeah. Yes, and so, so I agree, but I mean, I think just to, so, so, so I was also saying it was MacGuffin, but I, but I want to say that, of course, it's important to understand and to have in the vocabulary, but I, it's become part of the vocabulary that, when there is a broad degree distribution, that means that the average is not necessarily a good measure of the distribution. I think power laws are here, you know, like whenever we take averages, we have to be super careful, right? In the, in the age of pandemics, it's for modeling, but also for the distribution of bad things that can happen. If it's a broad distribution, we have to be very careful. So I think the insight that distributions can be non-normal and broad remains incredibly important and something to keep an eye on everywhere you meet it. But we thought that it was kind of a rare thing, but now we see that it's something we have to look for everywhere. So I, I think it can be both important, but important maybe for also different reasons. Yeah, it becomes uh, second nature in a way, right? In a way it's become second nature, right? Something that you don't think so consciously about, but it's always in the back of our mind. But again, what you, what Mata was saying, it's true, right? We should be careful not to forget some of these things because then we might need to rediscover them. In like our students may need to rediscover. Yes. Them, right? Well, so. they are, yeah, I remember when this paper, this paper that you were mentioning, the Nature Communications one, the Aaron Closet paper, and well, I mean. The first author wasn't him, but I don't remember the name of the first author, unfortunately. Yeah. I should. But I remember that some of our students were like, what? <laughs> Where does this come from? <laughs> why is this so important? Or why has this been so controversial in a way? Yeah. And, and well, I mean, I guess it was a fun story to like tell. No, it's like when some of our students, it's like, so um, when should I explain like community detection, like modularity or community detection or like they go like, because for them, that's like ancient. It's like, should I go back there and then yeah. just write it in my thesis? And you're like, uh, I don't know, maybe just read a review. I mean, you, you will be fine. But I mean, it's true that 
Yeah, things progress, but this part, this statistical part, I mean, we've learned lots of statistics from that, right? In the sense that we know that we have to look at the distribution, not at some pre-processed number. No. Right? And I think that's, that's, that's very important. And that is, that has stayed, right? Yes. Has stayed. I think everybody now, nobody gets away with like giving you like a number. I mean, they have to show you the distribution. You want to know yes. what the distribution looks like, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, I think, but I but I think it's still difficult for people who haven't been through this to parse. And I still see lots of box plots where you go like, well, there's a there's a there's a power law underneath here. Uh, you can see it, right? But it's but it's not explicit. And I think it's it's um you know there's a there's a super good paper I recommend called Regression to the Tail where they also talk about like when you're sampling from a power law, mm -hmm. you know, you can really get can get in big trouble and and. Um, and it has, you know, coming back to, to uh, you know, econophysics and Huberman and yeah, uh, exactly. and, think, but, and so on, you know, like there are some insights there also. Yeah, I think that like physicists or network scientists should not uh, forget the, the lessons with uh, power laws, but like epidemi epidemiologists, economists shouldn't forget. <laughs> I mean, we have much higher incentives for them not to forget than, than network science. Like yes. network science, we shouldn't, but they sh absolutely shouldn't forget about power laws because it's crucial in everything in everything we are seeing now right? in the pandemic, in, in COVID-19, in crash, uh, in, in market crashes, and, and in so many other things. And we know that, right? But I think that for us, in 2009, and, and maybe that's how we tra transition to the to the paper. Uh, uh, we started reading like uh, about Bayesian inference, right? And we started doing network inference with generative models and and doing proper Bayesian inference, let's say, or I mean, using probability theory properly to to infer things about networks. And I think that uh, from that point, for a bunch of us, and perhaps more and more. Uh, that changed a little bit our perspective, right? And from going from toy models to actually wanting to develop predictive models and yes, and, and this sort of thing. Well, statistical models rather than micro models. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, that, no. I, I agree. I agree with, well, that one thing and another thing that also happened in 2009, which is the first time, that's when a paper, it was by Lipson and was the other Schmidt. Schmidt. They published in science this paper. I mean, they, they made this software later that is called Eureka. And, yeah. and they, it was a, a paper in which they showed that, that they could explore somehow the space of mathematical models and get the Hamiltonian for the double pendulum. I remember it. When I saw yeah. that, I, I was just like, is this possible? Wow. I was just like, Wow, I, I cannot believe it. I mean, no, they must have cheated. <laughs> it's not possible that you can do these things. And I remember, I mean, we didn't go back to this until a few years later, many years later, but I, I still remember like the exact, like the group meeting where a, 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 well, a student at the time, now he already sent his company to another <laughs> company, but I mean, he, he presented the paper and I was just like, yeah, no, it's mind blowing. It is true, right? Yeah, and and yeah. So this because that's related to what we're <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I definitely want to. I want to get to the paper, and I think I was exactly going to start talking about, um, like you said. I think when you you described kind of you meeting up and you you said the word block models at one point, and and this is kind of a new direction, right? So we were all working on 
describing networks, community uh, detection of various uh, flavors, and so on. And then <clears throat> you moved in this direction, and and just kind of I was I was aware of this way of modeling because I was in a machine learning department in Denmark, and so they had been doing kind of the a different variation of all all of these things for a number of times. The generative models is kind of what you do in in Bayesian uh, machine learning. So, so part of why I was never kind of, because I went kind of in the direction of saying, you know, there are some of the structures that I'm interested in, the small group structures, the overlapping stuff, that there's not really enough statistical power in the big static networks to really infer those structures. So I kind of personally went in the direction of these little uh, dense structures that you can't really capture unless you have a lot of data and a lot of dynamics because you just don't have enough power for the for the modules and a part that was because of these but then as always with network science you guys and tiago and mark newman and and a whole group of people uh, many that i forget to mention here went in this direction stochastic block models and you've done this amazing work um and 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 that I think is the path that leads to this paper that we'll be talking about today that of course I was too lazy to read, but I was gonna say, um, I was gonna say that it exactly that it reminded me of, of the concept called symbolic regression sometimes, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is, and I think this is kind of hopefully maybe where AI is, is going, right? Like where, like that the, the machine learning and the statistics can help us learn about the world in a new kind of way. That's my dream. So that's, I would love to hear kind of about this paper and you should say the precise title so people can find it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was going to say, it's good that it's your dream. It's our dream. <laughs> <laughs> so we share a dream. No, no. So yeah, no. I agree. I mean, so so symbolic regression, definitely. That's that it's a symbolic regression problem. I mean, I guess in different this But maybe you should explain it. So so one of the things I, I realize when I do this is that I know a lot of these concepts, but maybe not everyone who listens does. So so you said the double pendulum and you kind of said it, but I think it's worth explaining exactly what it does because when you first hear it, if you haven't heard about it, it's really it is mind blowing. <laughs> so let, let me so okay. So regret, maybe we can start from something that most people will, will know, which is like regression, right? Like linear regressions, if you want, in which you assume that some data follow a linear relationship, right? And then you just fit the parameters, right? But let's say the structure of the model, which is linear, right? A, AX plus B or whatever, right? That's assumed to be known. Okay, and then symbolic regression is this part of machine, uh, machine learning, if you want. I don't know if people would classify it as one part of machine learning, but I would anyway, and it is. I think in, in, in any reason, if you start to think it up, it's, uh, there is no way to say that this is not machine learning. But anyway, sim symbolic regression, you have some data and you not only try to fit parameters, you, but you also try to learn which is the correct structure for the, for the data, right? So if it's linear, it's linear. If it's quadratic, it's quadratic. If it's an exponential divided by the logarithm of the sine of the factorial of X, then that's what it is, right? And then symbolic regression is the process of, uh, of finding the structure of the model, let's say, right? And this goes again, well, what people call symbolic regression nowadays is using genetic algorithms to do that. That's what 
people specifically call symbolic regression. But there is a long thread of trying to do this uh, by some people, but, uh, including Herbert Simon, going back to like, I don't know, some of these big people that keep popping up in your in your career, like Herbert Simon in the sixth in the eighties, with the, I mean with very precarious, like uh, I don't know. Uh, rudimentary uh, computers and so on. They they created something called Bacon. I don't know the name, but that that actually learned uh, the laws of gravitation from data, right? The Kepler's laws and then Newton's law of gravitation, right? From data. This was the eighties, right? Of course, it was something that was very restricted, uh, but it was something that is impressive nonetheless. And there is a a long thread of people that have been working on this and on trying to infer symbolic equations from data. Really, like close from. In some other areas, people have give different names to the same problem. Some people call it like equation discovery or sparse regression, even in the sense that sometimes they, they perform a regression, but they they don't. It doesn't have to be linear. It's like they have a prefix set of functions. So say like polynomial and a sine and a whatever and an exponential and they put they, they want to fit the parameters right and they have to put a sparsity penalty in whatever form you want to put it it doesn't matter it's like and and just to to, to reduce the complexity right there, there are these ideas in here right like the mathematical like trying to find a closed form mathematical model from your data and then there is this other idea flying out there it's like how complex do I want my model to be, right? First, can I do the task? Can I perform the task, right? Which, which implies a lot of things. Implies like, which models am I, even, am I even allowing, right? This is one thing. And then once you have found good models that fit your data, then what models actually are good, make sense are parsimonious models, like, let's put it like this. Yes. This parsimony idea is this idea that is always floating around and nobody knows how to nobody knows what well, people try to quantify in some way but let's but let's talk about this because this is endlessly fascinating to me right because i'm not kind of a super super good at this right and, and i remember when i started my students on using any kind of machine learning method and we, we have to choose like how many parameters how we're going to set it right and then you come and say oh there's a topic called model selection and then I was like, oh, this seems promising. Let me read the paper, right? And I, so I read the AIC paper and I read the BIC paper or whatever. But in the end, when you come down to it, as I see it, it just is like you have one function that grows, right? And then you have one function that falls off and you subtract one from the other. And it's kind of the little bit arbitrary how you said it. There are some ideas. Yeah, but... but in that's, the end, it's that's, very that's, difficult that's, to say should my should my uh, unsupervised clustering have four components or five components because you know so 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 we want parsimony, but you talked about Maxwell's equations, uh, Martha, right? And and like the, 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 now this is some parsimony, right? This is a different level. So yes. when you work, when you don't just have a point cloud of noise and so on. Is there some way to get closer to the parsimony to make it more precise in a way that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I think that yes. I think that well, that physicists we are not trained like. I mean, typically physicists we've been able to do as many experiments as we wanted, right? If we wanted to to know the dependence of the I don't know susceptibility on the temperature, we just did a thousand experiments, right? And if the error was and we had a cloud of points like the one you were mentioning instead of a nice like curve, we would do 
a million more experiments, right? Until the line was smooth, right? So that means that I, I think surprisingly, in some sense, we are not very good at dealing with, with data statistically, with data that contain a lot of uncertainty, where the uncertainty is at least of the order of the of the, of the signal, right? Or the noise is of the order of the, we don't have the tools, right? But then that's where being a Bayesian or becoming a Bayesian, right, uh, comes handy, right? And in that sense, I don't know, Marta has the book here prepared. I have my book prepared to show you, like, <laughs> my book, well, it's, it's, it's a book I don't know. that you have to read and not be, be too lazy to read it. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is the one is book. Yeah, show it, show it. I'll let show you. It's the... The Probably James book? Yes, yeah, yes. James. This is a one I have read in this book. No, yeah, not maybe all of it, oh, okay. but it's okay. fantastic. So if, if you are, a genius. If you sure. are like us, like all of us, right? Too lazy to read things. This is the one thing uh, I think you should read because then, okay, this thing of the arbitrariness of, of like this one thing, like complexity going up and, and goodness of fit going down, right? Uh, when you understand uh, uh, probability theory from the Jainian, if you want, Bayesian Jainian perspective, then everything becomes much more clear and there is no, nothing is arbitrary anymore. You have to be explicit about the hypothesis that you make. And then you apply the probability, the rules of probability, right? The sum rule and the, uh, the rule of conditional probability and, the, and so on. The, I mean, probability theory as we know it. And then everything comes for free, right? Uh, you don't need, and that, I think that's the, in our paper on our Bayesian symbolic regression paper, if you want to know, our Bayesian machine scientist, what we call the Bayesian machine scientist, but it's a Bayesian symbolic regression approach. This is what we did. We started, instead of trying to come up with heuristics to find a, a model, like to balance parsimony with goodness of fit, for instance, right? We started, to, let's say, we, we said, okay, let's start from formulating the problem uh, in probabilistic terms from the beginning. And yes. then you don't get to like two quality functions that you want to balance, you only get one quality function which is the description length. You want the model that compresses the data wow. as best as possible, right? Yeah, we have, we and have that has to... another thing, which is the description length, and we have... Well, yeah, I know. Well, but... I mean, I, no, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you keep going, keep going. What no, but you... anyway, at the end, you have to maximize the probability of the model being the correct one given the data. Yes. And that's minimizing the description length. It's the same, it has a information theoretical interpretation. But in the end, and, and you don't have two quality functions, you have one, maximize the plausibility of the model given the data or minimize the description length, it's the same thing. And then in this plausibility, you have two terms, one that is related to the complexity of the data and, and of the model, sorry, and one that is related to, the, to how well the model explains your data. But it's, a, it's an automated, you don't have to choose which one you give more weight or less. It comes uh, for free. And I think that's one of the contributions that we make in the paper. Right? Well, I mean, I, in, in a sense, contributions, because um, I, and I just want to contextualize what, what Ruzia said. Because one, so, so as you were saying, like symbolic regressions approaches, they, they were there. There were like doing genetic algorithms. And, and what were the problems of those algorithms? One was like, they couldn't be sure that they were sampling, sampling the whole space of possibilities of your mathematical models, right? That was one thing, right? And the other was, if there was like the way they were assigning complexity was arbitrary. So you can go there and select, oh, an exponential yes. is three and a, and a, you know, a power, uh, uh, a square root is one, and I don't know, and, and something at the 0 0.5. So that, 
that makes you nervous because you don't want those things. Yeah. Why do I have to choose? No, no, I don't want to choose because then choosing, choosing is bad. Choosing in an, an informed way is very bad. I mean, if you are very well informed, yeah, then you can choose. But if not, you cannot choose because you don't have the, you know, you, your, your plausibility table is not there, right? Yes. So what this kind of approach, like the Bayesian approach allows you is to really, you are able to have an expression for the plausibility of each expression given your data. And that is super powerful, super powerful in many ways. One, because then if you have some distribution that you have to sample, statistical mechanics gives you the tools to sample this distribution, right? And it's ergodic and you can do it and, and, and it has very nice properties, such as, for instance, I can compute averages. I can make predictions from averages. I, I can not only get the best lowest energy model, but I can also average over models, what was, which is something that was completely impossible before. You couldn't do it. You had to, you had to select one. Why do you want one? Yes. If your data has a lot of noise, which is the 99.9999% of the cases, your data is super noisy, then you don't only want, you cannot settle for one model because the uncertainty is too large. You have to look at many models. Yes. and make predictions based on that and maybe look at the properties of the models of the best models and, 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 and see what are the features that are the most important and, and this helps you advance. Any yes. other thing is noise, is as much noise as there is in your data, right? And of course, as Roger was saying, there is your strategy of just like two more experiments and then, you know, until you get like your, your nice, your, your, your error bars are this tiny and then, but yeah. But if, in reality, in many cases, this is not, is not a, even a possibility, right? No. Because you have what you have. And, 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 and in that sense, right, uh, like our Bayesian machine scientist opens the door to doing so much more that wasn't possible before. It's not just finding a very informed, like, best model in, in a way in which there is nothing arbitrary. Everything follows from the assumptions. You don't like the assumptions. I mean, you can change them, but, but everything... Once the assumptions are clear, there is nothing arbitrary there. Then it, you can do so many more things, right? I mean, yeah. now it, I'm talking like about my son, right? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> no, but yeah, yeah. So. No, but I think I think that's true, right? And I think um, I'm not a master Bayesian in any kind of uh, way, and and I think, but I think that what I was rebelling against when I was asking you this question is exactly the arbitrariness of this comparison between the model fit and the complexity, right? And this is what you're saying, if I'm hearing it correctly, that your framework or the Bayesian framework uh, in a way enables us to weigh against each other in a more principled way, right? Yes. That's, that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, I think I, that- Should we also just say, again, if people haven't read, the book you showed me was by E.T. Jaynes, and it's called something like the logic probability theory, the logic of science, something like that. E.T. James yeah. is a genius. He's written some, some papers, look them up online, you know, that said where he derives statistical mechanics from, ent from, yeah. from entropy and uh, quantum mechanics and their physical review papers. They have like one citation, stuff like that, I like guess, from back when it was- uh, yeah, these papers on statistical mechanics, what E.T. James is saying is that, I don't know, 95% of statistical mechanics is mathematics, is probability theory, and then five, the five, the remaining 5% is energy is conserved and, and pretty... Yes. Well, but it's, it's so... those <laughs> I really recommend those, because it's so simple, right? It's like, I have this... I have an unknown average, which is my energy, and just from that, and this like maximum entropy distribution, yeah. then you get statistical mechanics. 
That's very beautiful. It's beautiful. So, I mean, it's one of those papers that if you read it, you are going to understand and you are going to like, right? Because it's simple. Yes. It's simple, simple. Yeah. I know, but it, it's just, just because you, we kind of went over it and I was just thinking if someone is listening, we should mention what it, what it is because it is really kind of worth uh, recommending. But that sounds, that sounds fantastic. But I guess my question then for the Bayesian machine scientist is, so now you have a principled way to, um, to kind of take uh, data sets and begin to understand how to extract principles from it, right? Is, would that Hopefully, be fair? Yeah. And so my question is, what do we then learn? Like, let's say that I was someone who liked to collect data or, I, you know, uh, I had some influence. Like, what, what are the, what are the qualities of the new data sets that will enable us to revolutionize science and learn truly new things? Like, what did like somehow you know, like, what is the component that's missing before we can just automate science now? Well, I don't think it's the data sets, right? <laughs> uh, so I don't know, but maybe it's our experience here in, in our particular context and so on, right? But everyone has data sets, right? And I think that there are many more data sets that could uh, teach us fundamental things about the world, like biology or human societies and so on, than, than there are algorithms that really help us get that insight. And yes, that's our idea, right? So. Uh, that data or data science, if you want, should be more, uh, should be less about, uh, I mean, so of course there are all sorts of interesting data sets, right? That we still need to collect. So I'm not trying to say that collecting data sets, is, but, but there is a lot of work to do uh, in terms of, of, uh, of developing automated ways of getting insight from data, right? And I think that's why there is all the, like deep learning, these black box uh, uh, machine learning techniques are all very powerful. We've seen it. They can beat you at Go, at chess, at anything you want, right? Uh, no questions about that. But if you want to, I mean, you could not, I mean, you would predict very well when there's going to be a, a solar eclipse with uh, deep learning, right? But that wouldn't, would never teach you the Newton's laws, right? And all the things that we've learned with Newton's laws, right? Symmetries and conservation laws, I don't know. You name it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's part of the excitement about interpretable machine science uh, and interpretable machine learning uh, is there. And I think that part of the excitement about our sort of these symbolic regression approaches in which you learn from data uh, is, is where it's coming from. At the other, on the other hand, I think that because with our with the machine scientist, for instance, right, or with other methods, we are starting to learn that it's not that easy, that many times you get data. And for instance, what Marta was saying before, right? You, you give it to the machine scientist and the machine scientist doesn't tell you, look, this is the model, but it tells you, look, there are 500 models that are similarly plausible given the data. So it's not like you have a deep description length minimum and, and everything else is terrible models, yeah. but it's more like a rugged landscape, you know, with lots of good models that don't look very similar to each other and so on. Similar to what happens with partitions of networks and all. Yes, you know, the same thing. I was just thinking of this. Yeah, exactly. We're going and seeing the same things. So, so maybe what we are discovering now is that this is not going to be that easy. Uh, so that we are going to encounter uh, fundamental problems in that regard, right? Yeah, no, one of the things, so going to that, that is missing, 
Um, for instance, no, I'm going to mention one. It's the fact that if we could do symbolic regression by telling, oh, but this system has this symmetry or yeah. something, right? Giving them clues. It's like, don't give me just anything. No, 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 no. I want whatever, because this system has this symmetry. Yeah. I mean, this would be great, right? Because you would be able to like probably remove already a lot of models that are not fulfilling, that are good descriptors of your data because it's yes. one thing it's a there is a difference between a good descriptor of your data that it's like parsimonious enough like yeah yeah plausible like at the same level of plausibility from a mathematical point of view and then there is like the physics point of view right it's yeah. like oh this, this is this is this a good theory does that does it have like the proper like limiting behavior does it yes. have the proper symmetry, whatever components? Scaling. Does it have scaling? Does it shoot? And all these things, right? All these things are all work in progress, but it's a way like to get you there, right? By understanding like the properties of these landscapes, what do they mean? Yes. What, what do they tell us about our data? Because probably that also holds information about our data, right? If if yep. we know, as in as as you were saying, as in network community detection or or any or 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 whatever version of it you want, right? There are many partitions that are like competing with one another. People started toying with like, oh no, there are overlapping partitions. Yes. Why? No, this is what we have. So many, so many for you. So for instance, <laughs> like you. But I mean, uh, yeah, but I mean, but no, but but that's that's a natural, that's an, an, a natural like attempt at explaining you cannot fit things in boxes because they are not probably don't belong to only one box, right? Yeah. So so let's let's do something else. So in here, like like the approach to the problem already takes this into account in a way, right? We know there is not only one thing, I cannot use a genetic algorithm because there is not only one model that's going to be good because my data is too noisy. So so yeah, so there are lots. I mean, I think that that's a nice thing. There, 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 there's still a long, a long road ahead of us and, 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 and there are many things to discover and many things that, that this can be helpful for. And, and, and as, Going back to what you were saying at the beginning, and, I'm, and I'm, if you let me talk, I will talk for like two hours. <laughs> no, but I'm going back to what you were saying at the beginning of, of you know, this, this dream, like, of machine learning becoming interpretable, right? As opposed to like having to explain, like, whatever, you know, do the meta model of the machine learning algorithm that nobody knows what it's doing, right? That, 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 yeah. And this is this is one way for certain types of data, but there there have to be other ways for the other types of data, right? That we can that we can sort of like expand this this idea of trying to be like from like like from the beginning interpretable, and then see see what we can get from it and how this can help us. I don't know. I'm, and I I I yeah. It's, but it's let a, me let me ask you one last question. We should wrap up, but I think I guess what what I'm wrestling with. And what I have found to be incredibly important in my own uh, Bayesian uh, non-machine uh, scientist, because of course, like the reason that human beings are good is because we bring all kinds of priors that are very hard to put into the machine. We bring all knowledge of math and blah, 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 the world, what's plausible. And, and that's how, how we can still kind of beat the machines. But I think one of the things that is more important than people generally notice is the variables that you're modeling, right? So a lot of these new data sets, so again, like in my own data collection, you know, like we use some smartphones and then let's say we collect GPS traces. And then we see, okay, 
I'm at longitude uh, X and latitude Y, and then I move to longitude latitude X plus delta one and Y plus delta two. And you know, like the, the way that we describe the traces in the computer are not how human beings think about traces at all. Like we, in, in, in mobility, we think about places and we think about taking routes between places, but I don't think in this, in the way that the data is represented. So I also think that somehow you need like a, to make it fully automated, if I'm answering my own question, need a kind of two layer uh, machine, right? One that first finds the variables. And then once you have the right variables, then you infer the relationships between the variables. But that, do you know what I mean? That the yeah, yeah. data sets we're looking at but may just, not have the right variables. But there is a feedback between the two, right? Because in a way, I mean, and the right variables will depend on what you want to model. <laughs> so let me put it this way. For the same data set, you might want to be modeling different things. And sure. there are going to be different variables that are going to be relevant, right? So, so I guess probably what, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm digressing a little, but it, it, it's, it's, it's relevant and it's and it's the fact that now i think we are in a situation in which we want to collect all sorts of data because we don't know what we want it for but we want we don't want to miss out because then i might find out that what was interesting what was this thing and, and i have not measured this variable so let's measure everything or or and, and in the end you probably didn't still didn't measure what you wanted to measure but let's yes. measure as much as we can and it's very confusing right because the experiments are are not made very often with like a purpose but with just like for the sake of collecting things right and many data yes. sets have not had just like data sets right and it's your job so so in a way i mean in, in my mind if if you could like and, and then going back to like this this sort of my bayesian machine scientist it, it will from say you want you have a variable that you want to model why and you have all these other variables that you have collected and it will tell you right the models will tell you which ones are relevant to predict why well to model why or not right it will tell you right which ones now if if your prediction is very poor then you can think well maybe i'm not measuring what i need to be measuring maybe i want to add more variables right i mean these ones are not enough so i want to yeah. look for something else so this Sort of iterative process would actually be very helpful, right? Oh, yeah. I looked at this. No, it didn't work. Maybe I, I want think, to look at something. I think what Sune was referring to, and I think he's right, is not only finding like feature uh, engineering, right? Finding the the right axis to model my y, not the y, the outcome variable, but actually finding or I don't know formalizing y in such a way that it can be modeled to start with, right? I think in science we don't encounter that problem very frequently, right? For instance, we applied the the machine scientists to model the tensions between cells in experiments, right? Oh, we, and our features are protein concentration. So we know that the tension between cells depends on the concentrations of certain proteins, right? So it's very easy. We want to model uh, tension, that's why, and our concentrations of proteins, it's X. We don't, this previous step that you were mentioning, Sune, is, is not even there, right? We know exactly what we want to model and from, from where we want to model it. But I think when, but when you talk to a company, for instance, and they tell you, we want to, I don't know, we have this data and we want you to help us improve this process, right? Or with an engineer, yeah. right? And it's, it's like, okay, but now we first need to form, uh, formulate what, what the, the problem is. And I think I think you're absolutely right in that sense, right? That we that often we need to do, like the, there is this definition of the problem 
before the machine scientist starts working, right? Or any machine yeah. learning technique, for, on the other hand, it's not exclusive to yes. symbolic regression. This is true for deep learning or for anything, right? Uh, yeah, there is a previous step that might be more challenging because it's much, it's more like human-like. I don't know if there is such a thing as a, yeah. I don't know. Uh, there is, there is on the problem. Yeah, there is this quote by Newman, by Neumann, von Neumann, that it's quoted in the, in the book by James that says, Apparently, this uh, this guy was in a conference, right? Von Neumann. He was giving a talk, and there was a question from the audience saying, "Look, but I'm sure that there is some things that there are some things that uh, machines cannot do, no? Or computers cannot do." And then his answer was, "Well, if you tell me exactly what it is that the machine cannot do, then I'll build a machine that does exactly that, right?" So I I, I think this might this is exactly the problem you are. This just might be. I mean, it can be done with a machine, sure. But it's hard to formalize what we want to do in, in that previous step where we actually come up with the thing we want to model. Yes. It's just hard to formalize what we want to do in those situations. Exactly. And I think that, so, so this is exactly what I was trying to say. And I think that somehow what we're, some of what we're seeing with the deep learning, let's say Facebook or whatever predicting is that they are somehow, they have this complexity in the network that they don't care. It's just statistical correlation. So they can kind of somewhere in there, there's both some kind of structure that fits the modeling, but there's also some kind of feature engineering. I mean, that's in a way is kind of, you know, one of the uh, pluses of uh, deep networks is that when you look at the layers, you can see that they actually do edge detection when they look at the images, blah, 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 right? So, so they kind of do this. And I think that you're absolutely right. And I think deep insight that in physics and in biology, we're not used to this idea that the, you know, there it makes, we know what it is to measure. We know, I mean, but still it's Newton's genius to say that it's the mass that matters, mm -hmm. right? He even actually, even Newton says like, it's simple, you know, before then they thought that, you know, let's, it can be all kinds of things. It wants to go to the center of the earth, right? And he says, no, no, no. The thing that matters is the mass, right? And, and so I think finding, the variables that make it simple is is might be a kind of first step before uh, finding the simple relationships. That's yeah. all. I think that in that sense there are very promising approaches in which, like I don't know, there is uh, this guy Miles Cranmer. He's a graduate student actually in in yeah. Princeton, if I remember correctly, and he's doing very interesting stuff. And some of the stuff he's doing is using neural networks to come up with very like to learn things, but then like somehow like at some parts of the at these boxes, these little parts of of the neural network that are supposed to mean something, right? That, that these little parts that are capturing features or relevant things, then he tries to model those with symbolic regression, right? And I, yes. like simplify those. And I think that's a, a very, like combining both things can be very insightful in, in that sense. Yes, yeah. that's super cool. Yeah, if the, if the encoded vector, like the dimensionally reduced vector is meaningful. Yes, <laughs> That's exactly. the big if. It's, if it's meaningful, then yes. it makes sense. And that's, that's the question. If that's the question, no, no, which, I mean, there are opportunities um, there. Uh, I, I'm still a little hesitant. I mean, I, I don't know, in the sense that I see, I've seen talks in which people try to convince you that in a deep learning algorithm for like a classifier for images, like layer eight is for 
streams and layer H is for round objects. And I'm just like, <laughs> no, <laughs> you don't, this was just luck but you just happened to print this and it just gave you this. No, no, I mean, no, in the sense that there is, I mean, there is truly, I mean, or, or at least, I mean, maybe, maybe it's my lack of knowledge, but, but or, or, of understanding, but I mean, in the sense, the way these things are coded, it's not like the deeper you go, the, 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 the different scales that you are probing, because I mean, that thing has been so aggregated already that you didn't even know what to do. Yeah, so that, I mean, that, this is why, what I'm saying, like the, the big if is there, like how can I do like um a, like a neural network in which I can sort of like trace back and I know that this is right truly like yeah no no I mean, I mean we none of us want the neural networks that just uh, find you know basically correlations uh, and then make predictions we want to know how they do it and why they do it and I think that your approach I really think that this is very close to also how the I mean, I think that we are, I mean, I think that, well, all right, let me say it like this. I think that Bayesianism is also a really good metaphor for how scientists and human beings think and approach the world, that we bring with us knowledge in some form of priors that help us make decisions, help us make sense of the world, helps us understand the world. So it seems incredibly promising as a framework to make principles around this, right? And then you know, next time we talk, we should, we should figure out, you know, how does, you know, human beings can also poke things and test causality. And, and uh, so there, there are so many things to, um, to, uh, to get into, but I think we have to wrap it up. We're already, we're already in an hour and 20 yeah, minutes. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much. This was, this was, I was a bit scared about this, but this was a lot of fun and uh, I enjoyed it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I enjoyed always it wants so to much. be very prepared. Very prepared. <laughs> I, I, I think.